Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. My name is Jason. I'm originally from California, now living here in beautiful Beijing, city of museums. Today with me is Bebe. Hello. Hi, everybody. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Today, we have a special guest. Sir Gilbert van Kerkhova is from Ghent, Belgium, where he graduated with a master's degree in electronic engineering. He speaks Dutch, French, English, Portuguese, German, survival Spanish and survival Chinese. He first moved to China in 1980. He is the president and founder of Beijing Global Strategic Consulting Company Limited, a wholly owned foreign enterprise in management consulting that provides strategic guidance, investment and development advice and lobbying to foreign and Chinese companies and entities. Since the early 2000s, he has been assisting the Beijing municipal authorities in areas of economic studies and foreign investment promotion. He was deeply involved in the preparations for the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing. His book, Toxic Capitalism, was published in August 2012. He is a recipient of the highest award for foreigners in China, the Friendship Award. He's also rotating chairman of the Foreign Expert Committee, Belt and Road in International Talents. He's also been knighted and earned the Knight of the Order of the Crown in Belgium. And finally, he has also worked in Brazil, Nigeria, Spain, Thailand, Indochina, Burma, currently Myanmar. There's more, but we only have an hour. Welcome to the show, Sir Gilbert. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hi, Sir Gilbert. I, I, I still, I'm not able to say your last name correctly. Van Kerkhove. Kerkhove. Van Kerkhove. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Save my parents. <laughs> It's okay. Thank you so much for coming to our show. And I, I want to you know, share a, a kind of a funny story. So a few weeks ago, Jason said, oh, we're going to um, have an interview with Sir Gilbert Van Cover. I was like, wait a minute. I just bought his book. So literally days before Jason um, sent me the message, I got this book online and I was very interested in finding out, reading more about capitalism because all the, you know, problems we, we see. And so I just went online on this bookstore and I typed in capitalism and I bought like 10 books <laughs> that came up and this was one of them. And when he told me about it, it was like, wait a minute, I had it right here. And I, I, this book, I mean, if people want to read about truth and common sense, <laughs> you should get this book. Um, so I, I totally enjoyed it. And I agree with, you know, the sensible things you said and also all the observations. Thank you so much for writing this great book. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for the comments. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I know this is not in the questions, but I was reading the book yesterday again, and I, I was rereading the introduction. And in it, you start talking about how young people, um, um, oftentimes say we have this green thing, like, you know, making sure you bring your own bag yeah. to the grocery store. And then you say, oh, well, I, we don't have the green thing in my generation. We just 
you know, didn't have plastic bags. We washed everything. We didn't have disposable cups. We didn't have, we brought our bottles back to be washed and reused to the grocery store. Sorry, young Mm. person. You know, like we didn't have, it wasn't a trend in my day. That was just how things were. I could totally envision that conversation between my mom and me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I, I mean, the way we lived back in the 1980s, I was born in 1980. So I'm also really interested in your experience when you first came to China. And in the book, you mentioned that um, you just followed the money and came to China. And that's that's rather odd because 1980 in China, that's not really where you go to get rich. <laughs> right? yeah. Now, maybe. <laughs> it's it's uh, uh, Many people ask me this question. Why did you come to China in 1980? Sounds very, you know, suspicious. Were you communist? You were fleeing your country? Uh, no, no, no. I was uh, chasing the money. And the reason was I, I was looking for a job and I got this job offered in Beijing. It was, first of all, it was well paid. It was a challenge professionally, very, very interesting job to do that I had never done in my life. So, okay, go for it, you know. So when I came to China, there was no plan to stay here so long time. It was just like one more year, one more year, and I'm still still around <laughs> 42 years later. <laughs> You've lived here as a foreigner longer than anyone I've ever interviewed or met, period. So would you tell us about what China was like in 1980, 1981 mm-hmm. versus what you see today? And what kind of, how did that transformation take place? What did it look like? It's a, a, a good question. And usually when I start a seminar introducing to foreign people uh, what is China about, I show them always two, three pictures. They're always the same. Uh, a picture that I took from Chang'an Avenue from Jiangwen Wai Bridge where you see countryside, basically, with one small tower at the end of that avenue, which was the Beijing Hotel. There was no any other big building. Uh, there were hardly any cars on the, on the street. There were some buses on the street. That was it. I went back exactly to the same spot 25 years later. And then it's like amazing. You see all this glimmer of buildings along Chang'an Avenue, completely traffic jam on Jiangwen Wai Bridge. And then I say, well, you know, this is what uh, happened in China in 25 years, can you believe? Uh, And like I always tell the people, the changes you see, uh, uh, you know, from the early 80s to today, it's really amazing. And many of the young Chinese have no clue where their country comes from. For, For them, it's also discovery. And they first say, oh, you know, Gilbert is talking nonsense, you know. But then I show the pictures, like that one picture that I, I took in the Hunan Street, where everybody was gaping at me on the street because they said, gosh, you know, what's this? You know, is that an extraterrestrial standing there? And everybody in Mao suit and looking at me. But I said, this picture tells you, a very big story because first of all the amazement in the eyes of the Chinese people but also no hostility because I also worked in Vietnam and there sometimes you could run into hostility 
from the Vietnamese who would think that I'm either French or American. <laughs> and now this has changed a, a lot, but yeah, you know, it, it's different. So I never had this hostility, just amazement and curiosity from the Chinese. And then people ask me, what's you know, the biggest change you have seen? I say, well, you see the change in architecture, you see the change in technology, which is amazing. I mean, you know, uh, China has become a super country in terms of communication, modes and everything. But what I always say, well, one thing that always impressed me most is how the people changed. Uh, if you look back at the early 80s, you know, early 80s were not exactly very pleasant. It was a very Stalinistic environment uh, with zero liberty. The, the women were not allowed to have a colorful dress. There were only two colors allowed, no makeup, no jewelry allowed. You know, it, it was really kind of uh, crazy. You could not have contact with local people as a foreigner. We were basically locked up in the Beijing hotel. And I was lucky to be in the Beijing hotel because that was one of the top locations for foreigners. And, uh, and then, you know, trying to deal uh, with, with the local people. So I, I never listened very, very much to what I could do and could not do. I would just, you know, I bought a bicycle and I jumped on my bicycle and I went to the local markets and tried to, to say something or chat with the Chinese without knowing one word of Chinese. And, uh, but it was always very interesting to deal with local people. And then, you, you, you pull back to the future and, and then you, you see this amazing change in Chinese society. Uh, uh, I started writing a book about that, you know, because the lake is a Bali hole, but then you have the Chili hole, the Bali hole, uh, and so on and so on. And every generation is so different. And they also don't deal with each other always very well because they have really different mentalities. So there has been an explosion in Chinese society of, of different ways of thinking. In, in, in the Western world, people always think, oh, I know, the Chinese is like that. A Chinese is like that. It doesn't work because, you know, the funny thing is uh, that actually the Chinese themselves are not aware of it. Because if I deal today with Chinese people and I say, well, you know, some Chinese people, they think like that. No, no, this is not true. I'm Chinese. I know Chinese. What you say is not true. You know, and I say, well, because they all live in their own society bubble. So they don't know about the other people, how they think. Of course, now with the new telecommunications, with WeChat, people learn a lot of what's going on uh, in, in other in other environments in society. But that, that has been really a, a very remarkable change in those decades. Uh, I remember once I, I did a talk to uh, the, well, the talk was actually to the spouses of ambassadors. And mind you, it was held in the Sudan embassy. And, and I had all these women in front of me, most of them were actually Muslim. But okay, I delivered my speech and I, I talked about how the changes were in society and how the new generations were different and so on and so on, and the clashes between generations. And after the talk, many ladies came back to me and they said, Gilbert, what you are talking about the changes in Chinese society, we have exactly the same going on in all country. Generation gaps, the conflicts between generations, conflict between parents and children and so on. 
So they were very fascinated. So I, I started writing this book and it became a monster of a book. I did many interviews with people also here in the office, uh, inviting most of it like uh, Baling Hall people. Uh, and it was very interesting because I, then I discovered that the real Baling Hall, they start from 83, not from 80. The beginning of the 80s is still very much Chile the whole type of people. So then I, I, I asked a question that I will not repeat here uh, on, on, on the video. And uh, it was very interesting because the openness of these young people was amazing. And one lady in the corner, she said a little bit, you know, uneasy. Why? Because she was from 1981. And <laughs> she's still the chilling whole type, you know, she has not this open mind yet that we have. Uh, it, it was really fascinating. I talked with a lot of people. And this is why I also got very frustrated with my poor level of Chinese, because I love to discuss with people. Uh, there are so many hidden aspects of Chinese society. listening to The Bridge. Uh, a little over 10 years now. Actually, I would love to see an update on this because I think <laughs> a lot of um, a lot of things have, have changed or um, at least uh, going in different directions because we know that in the past 40 years, I mean, China has been really focused on economic development and especially, um, you know, alleviating poverty. And in the past few years, we can see that China is changing gear now, right? It's telling uh, people and also the world that we can't just keep pursuing um, economic growth without consideration of the impact we have on the yeah. planet, on ourselves, on our soul, right? So yeah. things have been different. And if I only have, uh, have the chance to ask you one question in this interview, um, I would want to ask about something I read on page 184 in a chapter titled Defining the Role of Government, a look at China. And there is um, uh, this. Is, so this is in 2012. And, you know, you were describing China um, and you said it's a communist country in name only um, and also called some people call it capitalism with Chinese characteristics <laughs> but in China. Um, we call it socialism with Chinese characteristics. And to be honest, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame anybody who, you know, has were in China at that time to think that China is probably more capitalistic or, you know, the free market is more vibrant than so many other places in the world. But has your opinion about this changed in the past 11 years or, you know, in regard to the, the path that China will take in the future? Do you still think it's a, it's a capitalist country with, you know, Chinese characteristics, or has the socialist side of it been emerging more clearly now? Uh, well, the uh, what I said that time was not just my creation. It was the common understanding from most observers who knew a little bit about China. So I maybe misunderstanding the term, <laughs> and I would still say that more or less it is true. Of course, Chinese government doesn't like you to say this way because they would say socialism, not you know capitalism. Uh, but as a matter of fact, also in the seminars I've been giving in the past, <clears throat> I showed this: how is capitalism in China going? And then 
you know, well, to be honest, there's not much socialism around in China. Yes and no. In the sense that you, you, you mentioned a very important topic in China is poverty alleviation. So, of course, you could say, yes, this is a, a result uh, from uh, a more social socialist point of view, which I, I agree. And I think one of the great uh, um, successes that Chinese government has had is exactly the poverty alleviation. And uh, <clears throat> But if you look at the details, how society works and how money plays a big role in China and how the rich people live and how the, the, the common the law by seeing live, then well, you, you can really not call it a, a communist country. It's, it's with very big inequalities, which is also mentioned in the book, with the, the rate of inequality in China is big, and I don't think it has gone down in the past couple of years. Uh, China is trying to address this because those uh, inequalities, they bring a lot of friction within society. And now that we have seen the three years of COVID, in a certain way, the inequality, in my opinion, most probably has gone up because the rich are still very rich, but many of the middle class and the lower class have lost out in these three years. So, yes, the government is surely trying to do something about it. So when I say Chinese characteristics, one of the characteristics would be, for example, which is very positive, Thing about China. China is one of the only countries in the world who has a five-year plan. You go to Belgium, my country, you go to any country, they even don't have a three-month plan. They don't know what they're going to do three months later. They have no vision. They have no strategy. They have zero. While in China, like, like uh, my, my uh, Chinese family uh, ancestors, if I may, so they were uh, one of the founders of the of the state uh, planning commission, as it was called at that time. You know, they started already in 1949 with the five-year plan, and they have been continuing this. You can criticize the five-year plan, but uh, if you look at it, and I've been involved myself with the five-year plan of Beijing, for example, and I tell you, it's, it's a very interesting uh, detail. Uh, I was asked to, to do a study on the five-year plan of Beijing city. So I made my things and I said to the government, yes, I will do it. And they said to me, yes, we want you to write like this. We want you to write like that. And I was sitting stone-faced in that meeting, looking at all these dinosaurs from the Beijing government. And at the end, they said to me, you're listening to us, but you're not really listening and you're not going to do what we ask you to do, right? I said, yes, sir. And then they said, this is why we want you to do it. Go ahead, do it your way. You know, because I said, I'm not going to be influenced. So when I wrote the, the study, which was huge, it was very interesting because all the bullet points that I had summed up, the Beijing government came with their five-year plan. They had exactly the same bullet points. Meaning is, you know, the, 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 the studies done by, by the government, they're all done by bureaucrats, by specialists. State Planning Commission or Development and Reform Commission, as it is called now, they have some really good specialist bureaucrats. They all work very hard. They come, they assemble this five-year plan. It's not perfect. Sometimes they, they take the wrong strategy, but overall, the strategy is good. And when you read my book, 
we will also read that in 2012, I was saying China is going to be the leader in electric vehicles. And they are going to make so many millions of it. And everybody was laughing with me to say, oh, come on, Gilbert, you know, China making electric cars. Uh, you know, and I said, well, <laughs> you look today what's going on, right, with electric vehicles. Uh, um, so uh, once China decides to do something, uh, that was the same in environmental issues. Uh, you know, why did I write this book? Because I got involved with the Olympics. I had nothing to do with environment, but it was my personal passion, environment. Because as I'm a very crazy person, I never did sports in my life. And one day I decided to run marathons, you know, uh, from zero meters to 42 kilometers. And I remember the first time I came home from the gym, I said to my wife, I've run one kilometer on the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a joke. So one year later, I run my first marathon, and I run actually five marathons in Beijing, and then I got wow. with the pollution. So I started studying the pollution, and I was one of the first persons to uh, declare that Beijing was covering up the true extent of the air pollution. I was very open about that. And uh, so I was became more and more interested in, in these things of environment, which is my own personal uh, passion. So this is why I decided to write a book. And then <clears throat> later I explained to the people, I said, well, you know, okay, China was very bad pollution-wise in the 80s, uh, even the, the, the 90s, uh, but they have really taken uh, this very, very seriously and they have done massive investments to clean up the soil, to clean up the waterways, uh, to uh, go for environmentally friendly energy, wind energy, uh, you know, and, and solar energy. Solar energy have also thermal solar energy, not only for photovoltaic. I've been involved in that myself. I brought in one of the top specialists of the world in solar terrible energy, uh, which the Chinese are also start to use. So it, it's amazing what you see, the investments that were done by China to correct this horrible situation we had in the 80s. And in the book, you have this all these horrible stories of poisoning in rivers and, and soil and things like that. Uh, they have gone a long, long way. Okay, not today when we are talking, we again have a horrible pollution. But this is something uh, that actually also has improved because we are in springtime in Beijing and we have sandstorms. And today we had a sandstorm. It's not the normal pollution. It's not the 2.5. It's actually the PM10 pollution today. Uh, it's, it's dust. So you cannot stop the dust. However, China has been stopping the dust a lot because China has done massive investments in building those forest uh, 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 regions coming, you know, between Beijing and Mongolia. Great Green Wall. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's a huge investment they have done. And I remember in the early 80s, I tell you, when we had a sandstorm, that was a real sandstorm. There was like one centimeter of sand <laughs> inside my car. That was wow. in, in, in the Beijing hotel parking lot. And you could not walk on the street. The ladies had to do, you know, with, with something to cover their face because the sand would hit you in your face. It was very, very painful. Wow. That was how it was 40 years ago. And you see today, oh, well, we are complaining that, okay, we have a little bit of dust. But I tell you, the change 
that we have compared to the sandstorms of 40 years ago. And this is only one example. Could I change oh, gears? Yes. Yes. Okay. I have one question I want to get okay. before the end of the show. So you are a rotating uh, member of the Belt and Road Initiative, international uh, experts. Could you tell us a little bit about your role with the Belt and Road and uh, what the Belt and Road is and how it's helping develop underdeveloped nations around the world? Yeah, well, let me be very honest here. I think the term that we are use, uh, using of the Belt and Road Initiative is a little bit stretched. Uh, uh, in, uh, we, uh, we set this up under uh, SAPEA, which is State Administration for Foreign Experts Affairs, which is a very important uh, organization in China. So it was not easy to set it up. So I started assembling a series of foreign experts, most of them my friends, many coming actually also from the old China hands group. And um, <clears throat> so we have different specialities in our group. Today, uh, we work very much with UWEE, which is Union of Western and Eastern Education. Uh, they are actually the pilots in this whole story today. So for the moment, we are concentrating still very much our efforts in the education sector. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, I'm very much involved in Shandong, uh, in a city called Binjou, with universities there. I'm the uh, director of the board of a huge high-tech technical middle school, which is a fantastic organization. And um, I have to go to Shandong next month because I will be there, most probably appointed as the chairman of another special group of foreign experts for Shandong province only. Uh, so what are our idea, of course, now we are doing a lot for children. We are a lot in education. Uh, we also did already two years exhibition in Paris in the Louvre Museum. Uh, where we have the uh, paintings of uh, young children. It's very, very successful. Uh, but when we did pre-COVID our missions to uh, uh, several uh, universities, several governments, uh, we, went, we met with the local government. Like, for example, with Binjo, I, I took a whole series of experts with me, and uh, every expert uh, either was in, in a pig raising, other was in, in frequencies, audible frequencies, many, many uh, also data. Uh, so we, we organized a seminar where uh, one by one of our specialists was giving a speech and introducing the technology and his expertise. All these people are pretty of age, because they have a lot of expertise. They do this willingly. They are not paid for it. So this so is more of a cultural, global cultural exchange. No, component. it's not cultural. It's not, it's really, uh, it's education, but also trying to be industrial. So during the COVID time, unfortunately, our activities have been nearly at a standstill. Uh, for example, I even went, went once with Mark Levine, who is one of our uh, specialists, I went to Sanxi province, and uh, where Mark Levin gave a performance and I gave a speech to the local people. It was, was very, very interesting. But there we also met with uh, with the local governments. It was very interesting uh, discussions we had. So, so uh, we hope in the future we can enlarge this. 
Uh, today, our team of specialists is way above 100. Uh, and we have specialists sitting all over the world. We have several, in, for example, in Paris. We have we have also campus a campus in Paris. We are building a campus in Germany, in Malaysia, in other countries. We are also in, in campus issues. Uh, and uh, so, of course, we do a lot of uh, education, but education is not just, you know, like teaching English. It's, for example, I went to, to a fantastic uh, school in the Zhejiang province that actually is uh, for hospitality and international exhibitions. Incredible installation cost. I visited the library there. There's no such library even in Europe of that quality. My gosh, you know, it's really amazing. All the students who study in that hospitality university, if I may say so, they already have a job before they leave because they go to work in Sheraton, in Hilton and, and things like that. So there we discussed, you know, about the hotel sector, how the business goes, the restaurant sector, the food sector, international exhibitions. I was explaining how it works with international exhibitions, what you have to be careful about when you organize international exhibitions, either in, in China or abroad. So it goes further than the typical, I would say, education things, because we, we also try to meet people who are uh, in, in, in other education, like medical or nurses or things like that, so it, it, it's a very wide variety. We hope we can enlarge it. Now, Belt and Road, well, we do we do have quite a number of international uh, uh, agreements. A little bit strange today because uh, we have a lot to do with Russia, for example. We just concluded another agreement with a technical uh, institution in, in, in Russia, and I have been dealing with Russian people who come to Beijing, and uh, even with Belarus also, that, you know, countries that are not very much favored today, but okay, we we don't do politics, we, we deal also with universities and, and, and developing contacts. So also this uh, Central Europe and Eastern Europe if I may say so, uh, we, we try to build up relations. We haven't done yet, for example, anything in Africa, uh, which you could say, okay, this is also uh, belt and road. But um, okay, so I hope in the future when international travel comes back, uh, uh, like, you know, we had a couple of years ago, we had a medical uh, delegation that went to Belarus. I didn't go, my wife went there together with doctors from France who, who explained, you know, how you could do diagnosis of, of the health of the people. Uh, so it, it, it can go pretty far. Like I said, you know, we have also these doctors who are from Paris. Uh, and uh, so it's a little bit of everything we have in our, uh, i give you one strange example, but it, it's a good example. We have one British guy, he's a fantastic fellow, very good friend also, and he is a specialist in pig sperm. You could say, okay, you know, pig sperm, you know, what? Well, it's, what? A, it's to grow like larger, more meats here. You know, he brings all this pig sperm coming from the UK where they have very special pig breeding. So, of course, the Chinese are very interested in that. He gave a speech also in Binjo. And, and all the specialists were, were very, very interested in this matter because this is really high tech, you know, how this thing is all processed. 
So we have like people from the hotel business. We lost one guy who is a, a general manager of a very big hotel before in Beijing. He's now general manager of a big hotel in Nanjing. Maybe at one stage we might also take him on board. So, so we try to have a variety and not just focus too much on university things. Mm. So this year is a year of change. Uh, China is opening up again. So we are very, uh, uh, very much trusting that things will change for the better. Like next month, I should go to Shandong again that I didn't want to do in the past. I didn't want to leave Beijing. And uh, so I hope uh, this can uh, be uh, very good. And uh, well, because we are not involved in politics, we are not doing big money projects, you know, that sometimes is criticized in the press that they say, yeah, China does all this, you know, expensive railways and buildings in Africa and, you know, all these things of debt. Uh, we are not involved in that. So we are more like exchanging expertise. This is why we have foreign experts. And many of these people uh, I have, they are all all China hands. They are here since a long time. Uh, some of them are retired, semi-retired or close to retirement. They do this to contribute actually to the development of China. They are not paid. Okay, sometimes, okay, our trip is paid, hotel is paid, but they all love to do it because it's a contribution actually from our side to the community. You know, I also deal in, in charity here a lot in, in, uh, in Beijing because I'm part of the Rotary Club. We do a lot of things, uh, helping children, basically, you know, helping children. Mm. We are doing quite a lot of things. For example, we have been involved with the congenital heart disease where we were the first ones to start doing the open heart uh, operation of people, of the kids, three, four, or three or four years old who had congenital heart disease. If they are not operated, they die when they are six or seven years old. So in that time, we were, fl we were flying the kids to New York for operation because there was no such, uh, let's say, uh, expertise in China. Now we don't have to send them anymore because uh, we have very good surgeons in, in, in China. We have all the agreements with hospitals, so we can send the kids to, to Qingdao, to here, to there, to, to special clinics. Now, for example, we always try to do something uh, that others are not doing, you know, to be like, you know, open the door to new things. And one thing we are doing now, it's on my website explained, not very nice to look at it, it's uh, repairing the sexual organs of young boys who are horribly uh, 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 bad, you know, by birth. So uh, these poor kids, uh, they are, of course, excluded from society because they cannot marry, they cannot do anything, you know. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. So we have launched this project already one or two years, so we are paying completely the two-step operation to, to uh, rebuild the sexual organs. Of course, it's a little bit taboo, you can understand in China. They don't like to talk about it, but it's a very stigma for these poor kids and these families. And of course, they're very happy once it's done. You know, it's very successful. And um, because of COVID, our, our program has also a little bit stopped, but it should restart very soon because we already have the budget. Uh, we will pay Chinese surgeons to go to the USA for special training to do this operation. They couldn't go because of COVID. 
so now the money is there, the budget is there, now we still have to relaunch all everything. So among this foreign community we have, uh, there is also a lot of goodwill that people try to contribute to society, be it as a foreign expert in this group I mentioned, but also even, you know, pulling up your sleeves and doing something to help blind children, children with mental issues. We have a project that they ride horses, you know, really fantastic stuff, you know. We have a special horses in the north of Beijing with special trainers. And those uh, boys and girls who, who have a very big mental issue, who don't want to talk with anybody, who are really, you know, hostile, they go on this horse. It is talking. They never talk to one word and they go on this horse and then they bump wow. with horses. It is the, those uh, people who do this, they are trained. The, the, it's not anybody, not just anybody can do this. So we pay for the training of those people who accompany the, the children at, at this horse farm. Of course, the, the, the horses are also specifically trained. You know, to be a good right? But it's uh, it's impressive. So we all try to do a little bit from our side to contribute to to, to our community. Mm. How do you fit all these in your schedule? Sounds like so <laughs> many wonderful things, but you know, you must be so busy. Yes, you're very right. I'm very busy, and people just don't understand. You know, that's it. But you know. What time do you sleep? I said, well, I have my Fitbit and I try to, <laughs> you know. I understand the, the motivation behind all this, all these positive changes that you're trying to bring to individuals and also to the society. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. to continue um, with the question I asked earlier because I really I don't it's not um, easy to 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 grab someone to talk to about you know socialism or capitalism and also about China now I want to uh, share my some of my thinking uh, when it comes to you know how capitalistic is China or how socialist is China because I think people um, they they know they people especially outside China think of China as a communist country, or it's a socialist country, but governed by a communist party. And there is a, you know, there's a difference in that. And also when, when, he, when people come to understand socialism, how do you define socialism, right? Well, for me, I understand socialism as to emphasize equality and also to put people's needs first. And when people think about that, they think, oh, especially when it comes to capitalism, they think they equate that with uh, the free market. Well, in my understanding, you know, capitalism, it means a bit more about the power of capital or the power of people who own the capital. And I think, um, especially nowadays, you, you can see different examples. For example, the U.S. Now, let's, uh, if we can be pretty honest, we can see that in the, in the U.S., capital is overriding um, the government or capital overrides politics. And, um, but in, in China, it's the other way around, right? It's uh, capital is very important when it comes to make, you know, come to in, uh, giving incentives, free market, right? People have incentives to, to, to develop, to innovate, to build. Um, but also, um, where does it end, right? Is capital the leading force in this society? So um, I think it could be a little bit of misunderstanding because we have the free market, 
because the economy is developing so fast that people think, you know, it's uh, the whole country is capitalistic. And also, um, I'm thinking about, for example, what we mentioned, sandstorm, and all the money and effort that China has been putting into uh, rebuilding forests. I mean, you, you come to Beijing airport uh, probably often, and over the years that I've come into the city from the airport, I see the changes on the side. Yeah, on the side of uh, the highway because it gets greener and greener, and the the belt of the green belt of trees gets larger and larger. And also uh, the de well the what how do you say it like the effort to reforest the desert deforestation reforestation exactly so can we think of it as more of uh, putting um, the like budget from the government into public projects so that everyone benefits so isn't that also a way of you know using capital for everyone's benefit so that. We all benefit equally from something like this. I think it's all a matter of words. I don't like to play with words and compare communism, socialism, capitalism. I think it's just how society is organized. And I must say, unfortunately, the USA is not a good example to follow. Uh, I I have many, many uh, negative views on the USA. It's a fantastic country. I have an American daughter. And uh, so we never talk politics, otherwise we get into a big fight. Uh, but um, yeah, it's a nice country. But if I look what's going on in the USA and you talk about projects like greening the country, you talk about uh, transportation, rail, road and everything. Uh, well, uh, it's a horrible situation in the US. When you may look at Europe, I think it's somewhere in, in the middle. Uh, at least in Europe, we also try to green the country, you know, to build infrastructures, to have subways, to trains and everything. This is public expenditure. I, I, I don't think this is a matter of capitalism or socialism. It's just you have to take care of, of the population, of the people. You know, it's caring of the people, like we say sometimes in China, serve the people. But yes, the politicians should serve the people. Unfortunately, it's not always the case. Um, so I, I would say that the, the strength of China has been that, like I said, they make these five-year plans, they take bold decisions, and then, like I say, they move ahead like a German panzer, you know, like a tank. They go and nobody can stop them anymore. And this is unfortunately what is lacking in, uh, for sure, it's totally lacking in the U.S., where infrastructure is crumbling, it's really, they don't have even a high-speed train. You look at the accident. Accidents they have, you know, recently. Do you remember any train accident in China with thousands and hundreds? 2011, maybe? train accidents. Two train accidents, yeah, over, over a period of 20 years with so massive high-speed train. You know, one guy is also in my experts group, uh, David is his name, I call him Mr. Railways. The guy, he has done 700,000 kilometers of high-speed train in China. He knows all the stations in China. He has been in all the train stations. He's like a living book telling about the trains. But where can you find this in, in, in other countries? I mean, this is something great. Some of the foreigners say, ah, Chinese are building the roads to nowhere and railroads to nowhere. I said, sorry, I don't agree with you. I have seen the immense changes 
due to the, all the infrastructure that China has built. I don't say it's always perfect. Nobody is perfect. But I would say 80-90%, they have done a fantastic job, okay? I, I, I joined two movies where that unfortunately they have not yet come out. I hope something is going to come out this year. One is the Yangtze River the movie that I joined, which is actually called The New Three Gorges. Sin Sanxia is the name of the movie. It's a 3D movie. I joined it two weeks. Oh, my God. It was really a discovery to us. So I started in Chongqing, and we went down the river uh, uh, up to Three Gorges. Now, I thought, you know, oh, this is poor country, you know, this is former Sichuan. Gosh, was I wrong. You saw this incredible highways and tunnels and everything. And then you go into these cities and said, gosh, it looks even better than Beijing. And I thought all this was poor. Oh, poor me in Beijing, you know. And I looked at the people and I said, you know, how is this going? You know, the Yangtze River has gone up and blah, blah, blah. Many people not happy, blah, blah, blah. They said, well, the Yangtze River has gone up. Now we can go everywhere because all the waterways have gone up. Now shipping and boating can go everywhere. So all these previously landlocked areas in the West and Central China are now suddenly open. So Central Central China, the west of China, was very poor, underdeveloped. They made all these highways. It's incredible. And, and I tell you, the tunnels, I, I, I went through those tunnels between uh, Chongqing and, and uh, Sensia. And then I said, oh, oh, look, this tunnel is two kilometers long. Oh, my God, that's a long tunnel. 20 minutes later, oh, 15 kilometers tunnel. <laughs> Next one, 13 kilometer tunnel. And you go through those tunnels. There's 13 no- kilometer long tunnels? Yeah, there were longer than that one. Okay? Wow. So you can imagine the cost and the bridges that you hang in the, in, in the sky. Is that, oh gosh, we went over one bridge and we went first down. And then we saw, oh, there's the bridge, you know. Oh gosh, that was really incredible. I went to Xinjiang. I went also in Xinjiang to the northwest of Xinjiang, the whole border with Kazakhstan, invited by the government to go and inspect the border areas. And it was totally incredible, you know. Now you can go everywhere where you want. The whole west and central China has been open to the world. Before, if you had a factory in Chengdu and in Chongqing, Forget about you cannot export. It's more expensive to ship a container from Chongqing to Shanghai than from Shanghai mm. to USA. This everything has been now upside down. Mm. There's right. still work to be done. For example, China should invest more in the transport of goods because of coal. Mm. Now, the high speed trains, but we also need to have more uh, rail transportation because. Trucking is not exactly the best solution uh, for mistakes. Those changes were very often misunderstood by the farmers. They say, oh, they do this little bridge to nowhere, whatever. I say, well, I can tell you a different story, my man. (laughs) It's really, it's great. I think it's a great example of um, the different ways of doing things. And also, uh, just uh, in China, we value long-term projects. We are willing yes. to, especially the government is very patient. I mean, you know, I read about these and uh, to be honest, I learned from the Chinese government how to be more patient, how to be more like mentally calm. 
<laughs> because that's the way you know they do things. They not just five-year plan because every five-year plan is a part of a decade, if not a hundred-year-long plan. We know where we want to go. The you know revitalization of the Chinese civilization, and we break it into parts, and just they just go along and just do what they need to do, and you know scientifically. So and also you mentioned Chongqing. I think they they do have the real road from Chongqing to Europe to Germany, right? Yeah, for transporting yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, commodities. They, there, are, there are many, many railroads. I, I, I could not even sum them up because there are so many. There are also railways that goes to Belgium. They go to Germany. They mm. go everywhere. And um, the problem there is still that it's a little bit expensive. Still, you know, the cost mm. of. But I think slowly, slowly, the cost will go down. Uh, mm. I think the initiative is very good. But it's a, it's a very, very complex matter because the problem we have with the railroad is that the gauge of the of the rails is different, you know, in several uh, countries. So you have to change the train, change, change the cars, you know, uh, it's very complicated. Uh, so, but it works. And um, even to my own city uh, in Belgium, Ghent, uh, there is a connection because the Volvo cars are being made in my my uh, home city, Ghent. Uh, it's taken over by the Chinese. The, the, the Volvo factory in Ghent is, uh, belongs to the Chinese people, to Geely or something like that, you know, whatever. And um, <clears throat> it's very successful, actually. Uh, it's working very well. So the cars are being transported very often by, by railroad uh, between mm. uh, China and Ghent. So many, many things happen, yes. You're listening to The Bridge. You know, you wrote your book, uh, 2012, and Bebe kind of already touched on this. I have noticed in the news a lot over the last few years that China keeps talking about switching from to switching to qualitative growth. They keep mm-hmm. using this term, qualitative growth. And so environmentalism seems to be a uh, something that the Chinese are taking very seriously. You already touched on this, but I was wondering if you could elaborate. Do you think that uh, toxic capitalism is uh, changing and evolving in terms of China's uh, current growth strategies? Do you think that it's moving away from just consuming everything as fast as it can to preserving nature, to preserving water, to preserving soil. What's being done? What sh- what is about to be done, and what can be done? Yeah, well, it's a very difficult process. Uh, people say, "Well, you you call it toxic capitalism," meaning is capitalism is toxic. I said, "No, you have like loans. You have loans, and you have toxic loans. You have capitalism, good capitalism, and toxic capitalism. Toxic capitalism is here that you have a complete disregard for the environment, that you just want to make money, 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 uh, sell to the con- to the consumers cheap stuff that they use one or two years, throw away, buy new one, which is all explained in the book, the, the, the issue of durability of the goods, which is a very and recycling and so on. So uh, China has, I think, slowly processed to improve the environment. Uh, recently, it's a little bit yeah, slowed down in the sense that China is unfortunately forced to use a little bit more coal again uh, to generate electricity. Uh, but this is even in Europe the case right now. Uh, this is, I hope, is only uh, momentarily uh, uh, issue, uh, but they are continuing to clean up a lot of things. I think what still needs to be done is to teach the consumers 
do waste less. Uh, uh, mm. In my office here, I have on my wall some uh, cartoons uh, that were published in China Daily that say uh, that also the President Xi Jinping says, you know, you should not waste food and things like, mm. you know, it starts with many, many little things. I, I remember I, I, I did a seminar in, in, a, Beijing, in a Beijing university uh, for a group of uh, EMBA people, all Chinese. And I explained to them what was going on with toxic capitalism, but especially one aspect, the plastic pollution. Mm -hmm. And I remember I brought from my home a bag with all kinds of plastics, you know, cups, toothbrushes, uh, yeah. uh, whatever, packing material for takeaway food and all these things. And then I showed them, I said, you know, this is what you use every day. Did you ever turn them upside down to see the code which is written on the back? Because you have seven types of plastics and they are marked like one, two, three, four, five to seven. Now the problem is only maybe two, maximum three of those plastics can be recycled. All the rest cannot be recycled. So I showed them, said, you know, you look here, it cannot be recycled, this plastic cannot be recycled. So what, where does it end up? You know, in, in, in the garbage, and then it goes into the soil, and then it goes into the ocean. You know, already in my book, I, talk, I talked about uh, the floating islands of garbage in the Pacific right. Ocean. You know, I talked about things at that time. People said Gilbert, you know, is, is inventing things. Now everybody talks about the floating islands, you know, mm. and plastics mm. in the oceans. So, uh, uh, okay, to cut the story short, the, the, the Chinese students were really shocked. And they all told me, they said, Gilbert, we didn't realize what we were doing. And we did not realize that actually we are contributing to this plastic pollution. I said, well, you know, don't use all this plastic stuff. Now, the government is slowly trying to improve the situation, for example, for the takeout, uh, uh, to use not normal plastics, but to, to use uh, biodegradable. Degradable ones, yes. So uh, if you, for example, you go to Morel's restaurant, you will see that there, their packing is actually a kind of special paper, you know, very, very mm, special. Exactly. So they, they, they try, uh, but a lot still has to be done in China. And I think this is still uh, the big challenge in China is to motivate mm. consumers to consume more wisely, like I explained, mm. you know, durability, blah, 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 all these things. But also uh, recycling is a big, big, big problem. In my book, mm -hmm. I talk about it and I say, well, you know, you have like four different containers and then the people have to separate everything and then the containers go downstairs and then they go all together in one single truck, you know, and nobody gives a damn about recycling. You try this in Belgium, you get a fine because people come mm -hmm. to check your garbage on the street and what's inside. I, I'm not kidding you. And they mm -hmm. open say, oh, this should be not in this bag, should be in the other bag. You know, okay, they go sometimes a little bit too far. But here, uh, like in my compound, nobody takes care. Actually, we try our best for recycling. We have our IE room that we don't use because we don't have an IE room is our storage room. And there we store all the paper we uh, all the plastics that can be recycled, like the bottles and the tins and everything, you know, we separate everything. We have a very good friend. I called it the tricycle guy, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. in our compound and he collects the metals, the papers and everything. So my wife gives him a call. He comes with a big 
back, huge back and put all the paper and everything in it. So we do really sort our things very uh, carefully. He's very happy with us and super nice. Right? And uh, so, okay, if everybody would try this a little bit, you know, uh, and, and this is still a long way to go, uh, mm. see still Chinese consumers uh, need a lot of education. We see this, unfortunately, in restaurants. <clears throat> what else restaurants also explained to me, they said, you know, like 10 years ago, uh, the, the, the food garbage we had was like you know, a big pot, you know. But they said now it's like four or five times so much. Why? Because now most of the clients who come to eat in the restaurant are Chinese. And the, 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 the restaurant tells them, you order too much. Too much. So oh. you cannot finish it. You think I have no money to pay? You know, <laughs> get lost out yeah. of all the dishes, you know. And then they, they taste a little bit, they taste a little bit. And if they would at least take away, that is okay. But many, they just don't take away anything. So there's so much waste of food uh, that uh, Morel's restaurant also tells me they are shocked, you know, that mm. it has gone through the roof. And while, you know, you are also... Bali law, and then most probably your parents also didn't want you to waste your food or something. Or to exactly. You know, right. my, my parents were the same. Oh gosh, you know, they didn't waste anything. And 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 this is, uh, I always say, you know, eat your plate because President Xi Jinping is watching you. You know, and uh, yeah, I, I think this is still a lot of education that needs to be mm. done because, of course, they go to the restaurant, they want to show off to their friends, they have money, so they they order so many dishes, you know, and uh, it's, it's typical Chinese. Thank you so much for your time, Gilbert. That's all the time we have on The Bridge today. If you enjoyed this episode, please email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com and maybe we'll read your comments on the air. Talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.